You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Thursday, March 17th, 2022. This is episode number 238. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 28,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about breaking news about Brittany Griner, Illinois adding... 60 new craft cannabis licenses, a report on legalization and youth use, a Jamaican national gets 24 years for trafficking, cannabis and cancer treatments, UFCW and the industry, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or South by Southwest or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? Oh, man. Good morning, everybody. My headline today is coming out of uh, the Chicago Tribune from Robert McCoppin. Court ruling clears the way for 60 new craft cannabis grower licenses in Illinois. Midwest booth haters, small batch craft farmers, and social equity applicants looking to join the much embattled Illinois Green Rush can all breathe a little easier this morning. The state of Illinois won a court order awarding 60 new craft cannabis growing licenses, a major victory for smaller operators looking to enter the market. Per the Chicago Tribune, Sangamon County Judge Gail Knoll lifted the injunction holding up, awarding um, the licenses until litigation was settled, thus restoring the 11 applicants um, of those who had sued, uh, challenging their disqualifications by the Illinois Department of Agriculture. The agency is now expected to rank all applicants seeking license qualification. If there's a scoring tie, a lottery will be held. Determining, determining the fates of the winning applicants. The Illinois Department of Ag issued a statement stating uh, they're determined to find the best way to move forward as quickly and efficiently as possible while maintaining our commitment to a fair and equitable licensing process. Uh, 
they said they'll post updates on its adult use cannabis webpage and will be in touch with all remaining applicants in the near future. Craft growers hailed this decision as a major victory for applicants trying to get started in the business. The state was initially required by law to award another 60 craft grow licenses by December 21st, 2021, but it was held up by court orders. The Tribune reported another 185 dispensary licenses are held up by court orders while litigation challenging the application scoring process continues after a flood of applicants uh, complained that consultant KPMG scored identical submissions differently and that white, wealthy, uh, politically connected applicants did much better than minority applicants. In related news, Governor J.B. Pritzker announced a new simplified online application for 55 new dispensary licenses to be awarded this year, replacing uh, previous applications that required hundreds of pages and costly consultants and investments under the new proposed rules. Uh, dispensary applicants would be able to apply online for a $250 fee, bypassing the pile of paperwork that was used for a flawed system uh, that ranked a company's eligibility for license. Each applicant will have 45 days to prove uh, the following certain uh, social equity eligibility criteria. The applicant has at least 51% ownership and controlled by one or more individuals uh, who have resided in at least five of the preceding 10 years in a, disor- a disproportionately impacted area. Um, the uh, applicant has at least 51% ownership and controlled by one or more individuals um, who've been arrested for, convicted of, uh, educated, delinquent uh, for any offense eligible uh, for expungement or as a member of the impacted family. Or by meeting alternate criteria, which will be described in the upcoming release of the new adult use lottery rules. I'm interested in seeing what these quote-unquote alternate criteria will be, as we all know the devil's in the details. Having traveled to Chicago for an industry event with Cannavision Independent Broadcasters, Hush Chicago, what up? Ladies, uh, this past fall, I must admit the dispensary uh, weed in the Windy City blows. Uh, the MSO product that floods the retail shelves uh, has consumers keeping to the streets in search of that terptastic tastiness readily available from the neighborhood dope man. Uh, hopefully these new rules will uh, help rectify that situation. But we've seen this story play out before and some, somehow it seems that in the end, the trap always wins. This is Rico Lamit, the dopest dad on the street, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on this one. And if any Illinois operators are in the audience today, let us know how y'all feel. I got no booth comments coming from Jason Beck. What's up with that, man? I mean, I mean, that, I mean, you know, I mean, you you did an amazing job describing the booth and the poof out there. You know what I'm saying in the Windy City because all that shit should just get blown away like tumbleweed. You know, but uh, this just sounds like another socialist equity program that's probably <laughs> destined to fail. The weed is so bad uh, in the dispensaries. I really tried to support some folks out there, but it's, it's bad. Um, yeah, I used to sell weed on the streets out there, and I know how to get <laughs> shit really quickly and easily. And um, my shit was on speed dial as soon as I left the fucking uh, doors. What are the See? prices like? Support the trap. They got better weed. On the street or in the dispensaries? In the dispensaries. On par with L.A.? Believe it or not. When you're in wow. Illinois, make sure to support the trap. Support your neighborhood dope man, allegedly. I mean, I mean, does anyone really want to go and support these MSOs that are all about protectionists and keeping prices artificially high just because they can? The uninformed and uneducated consumers, the newbies into the uh, in the game, unfortunately, they're they're just left in the dark and they just go directly to these MSO producers and, and they think that's okay. I was just going to say, to Rico's point, I think it's a bit unfair to say that people who go towards MSOs are uneducated or don't know any better. 
Um, I think that there are a number of cannabis rookies who are looking to enter the market, and they're really looking at something that reminds them of the current CPG markets and are looking for products that they might think are safer and more reliable because they're coming from uh, bigger groups, bigger uh, cor- corporations. But, but Gretchen, all these recalls and shit are coming from the MSOs. They're not coming from small batch farmers. So a lot of uneducated, that's why I say uneducated uh, consumers, because they don't have information from anywhere else. And um, here in California, at least, we have $10 million that's supposed to be pushed towards educating um, the public. It, we haven't seen any of that deployed. So you see any of these billboards, you see any ads or anything like that, they're coming from MSOs. You're going to go to that MSO and get your product. Little do they know that's where all the mold is coming from. That's where all these recalls are coming from. And that's where all this poor bullshit product is coming from as well. So that's why I say the uneducated uh, folks. So it's not a diss to any of the uh, the, the new consumers, but um, a lot of the smaller farmers, they just don't have the capital to put out that education and, and to do the outreach that these other people are, are doing. And in my opinion, it's hurting the consumer and it's hurting the industry more than um, the small uh, operators are doing. And who do you think should be paying for them to be able to educate people about their product? The state. These taxes. The state should be paying for the small farmers the state to should be, be able to advertise the state, better. The state should be educating the people about the difference of products, should be educating people about the sativa versus indica bullshit and about um, um, uh, potency bullshit. And they should be educating them about like where your product is coming from. If it's coming from these large farms where they're having problems with mold, uh, recalls, and, and, and supply chain issues, they should be educating the public about that, too. This, one, one thing I will I'll go ahead, well, Brandon. I think the state should take an interest in the health of their citizens, no matter what the state is. And the state should encourage uh, and come up with programs to educate the consumer on the small farmer because it doesn't matter what state we're in. The small farmers are doing it better than the MSOs. And then on top of that, the MSOs are pulling money out of some of those states where the small farmers tend to be in the singular state, and so all that revenue is staying in the state. The state should encourage the small farmers over the MSOs. It's better for the citizen. It's better for their tax base. Yes. Also, too, I don't say this that often, but Colorado actually did this and they did it right. They had a, when they started with legalization, they had a really good um, public messaging uh, platform with a whole bunch of different television ads that were made to educate the, the general public around cannabis and it being legal. So, 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 Gretchen, like, no hatred towards like any of the consumers um, or the MSOs. I just think the MSOs should get their shit together. And uh, and just know that these small farmers are coming for that ass. And if they don't get their shit together, people are going to continue going to the neighborhood dope man. Period. Well, I don't dope think man, dope dope man. Man is going to do anything for this industry. I don't think keeping an illicit market going has helped. This anyone. industry came from the neighborhood dope man. I get it. Doesn't mean it should stay there. Yes, it should. Well, we, we should have that bridge. We should have that bridge. Ridiculous. And the, MS, the MSO should be hiring the neighborhood dope man as their uh, public service announcer, period. Because they know a lot more about this industry. They know a lot, a lot more about the consumer than they will ever know. And until they uh, get rid of that hubris, it, they're going to continue to have problems like this. As long as you keep uh, promoting the neighborhood dope man, you won't see legalization coming federally anytime soon. Dope man, dope man. Why is the neighborhood... Why is the neighborhood dope man demonized as a bad guy when the industry got their idea from them? I, I, I can't believe that's an honest question of why a drug dealer would possibly be demonized. 
I mean, you have old ass white guys who are going to be the ones creating the laws who you want to put forward laws for legalization, for standards, for regs. They're not going to be on board with keeping it uh, in a list market in place. the white guys that you're describing right now are the drug dealers. The dope man is the guy who brings medicine to the community. Exactly. That's okay. I'm well, I'm not taking any medicine from some guy I buy on a corner. I'm just not. I'm going to look for an FDA regulated product. But you'd rather go to the Sacklers Gene, and get your opioids, Gene, right? Let's let's give Gene the the last word. I'm sure we're over time on this. Well, well I think unfortunately the state uh, needs to go combine with the information from the community. The community has a lot of information. The state keeps going to universities for their science and universities are way behind in terms of knowledge in regards to this plant compared to what's happening in the community. So it's this really poor link between the state and universities making rules or MSOs that they know very little about. Yeah, there has to be a middle ground. Absolutely. The, the community knows. Let's tap into the community. Okay, I guess Todd gets the final word. Go ahead, Todd. Thanks, Susan. The, the, the unregulated market, and Gretchen, it's growing faster than the regulated market because obviously you don't understand this whole industry, this whole community, the whole thing that's been built for really basically 100 years. So the unregulated market, you can call it illicit, illegal. You can call everybody uh, dealing weed without a license criminals. But it's just ridiculous, and it's not going away. And you don't understand. The feds are still going to um, legalize, if even if we promote guys like me promoting the unregulated market. It's still going to come to fruition. Basically, the feds are going to legalize, but the unregulated market is never going away. Face the music. Todd, when do you think the feds are going to legalize? Please tell me. Well, um, I'm going to say, listen, I used to uh, really put it off because I'm going to say now within 24 months, I don't believe this spring it's going to happen. I think we're really going to have a big focus on it here in the next two months, but I think it's uh, going to happen within the next 24 months. Finally. I think you're out of your gourd. It is. I I think you're out of your gourd too, too, Todd. There's no way it's happening in 24 months, but I will say this, that every day we don't have federal legalization. We are one day closer to achieving that goal. All right. We're way over time on that one. I love the comments and I love you too, Gretchen, even though I feel like you're miseducated on that on that topic. So up next, he is the uh, cannabis industry's longest continuously running retailer and a former neighborhood dope man himself. Some of (laughs) some of his worldly favorite things include mink coats, private jets, triggering the libs and smoking the world's best weed and identifying booth around the globe. Come to the stage next. Jason Beck. What you got for us, my man? Oh, yeah, Rico. Happy Thursday. Today, I think everyone is going to love this headline. It comes out of Maine, where the accused ringleader of a $13 million marijuana operation wants to use weed while he's out on bail. That's right. He's fucking delusional. The Farmington man accused of running a multi-million dollar legal pot operation is asking a federal judge to modify his bail conditions so he can use medically prescribed cannabis while awaiting trial. Lucas Sirios, 41, argues that he has used pot recommended by his physician to alleviate back pain and ease symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome for the past 10 years. If his request is granted, Sorios would become the first federal defendant in Maine facing drug charges to be allowed to use medical cannabis while on bail. Sirius is also is accused of operating an illegal marijuana operation that sold 13 million in cannabis grown in western Maine. Ostensibly under the state's medical marijuana program, the non-medical patients across the state lines, as well as in Maine, 
He's he's one of does of a dozen people in three businesses who have been charged in connection with the marijuana operation. Others charged include Franklin County Sheriff's deputies, a former Western Maine prosecutor, and a former Wrangley selectman and a former Western Maine town manager. Sirios has pled not guilty to eight charges, including conspiracy to distribute and possess with intent to distribute a controlled substances, conspiracy to commit money laundering, bank fraud, conspiracy to defraud the U.S. and tax evasion. And Sirios remains free on $50,000 cash bail secured by $300,000 in personal property, mostly vehicles. Conditions include that Sirios not handle cannabis or use cannabis, even though he has a prescription for medical cannabis in May. Sirios's attorney Timothy Par- Parlotti of New York of New York City claimed in his motion that since his client has not been allowed to use cannabis, his neck pain and spasms have grown worse. These symptoms are limiting his ability to function, including bending and lifting. The attorney wrote, "His irritable bowel syndrome also is more severe without medical cannabis." The motion said, "Palatory also are." argued that denying his client the ability to use medical cannabis violates the Rohrbacher Farr Amendment that forbids the federal government from spending funds to interfere with states' control of medical cannabis. Uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Noah Folk opposes the motion, arguing that other drugs could treat Sirius's chronic pain and bowel problems. He noted that nearly every federal court in the nation has refused to allow federal defendants to use medical cannabis, and U.S. Magistrate Judge John Nivison has scheduled a remote hearing for the motion on 12.30 p.m. Friday. That is tomorrow. If convicted, Sirius is phased up to 30 years in prison on the most serious charges, and he could be fined up to $1 million. He also could be offered to forfeit properties where marijuana was grown and other items deemed to have been purchased with illegal drug proceedings. Well, it sounds like this guy's probably going to get washed like detergent soap. Not to mention he's fucking – I don't know what the fuck he's smoking if he thinks he's – if a judge is going to grant him the ability to use cannabis while he's on federal bail, federal probation, or anything such like that matter, anything that has to do with anything federal. He's shit out of luck. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Okay. Nobody wants to comment on that. It was, so because it's federal, it's going to be – you think it's going to be impossible. I had a I had a deferred entry of judgment plea and – oh, shit. Is that a rotary phone? It sounded like it, right? (laughs) (laughs) The nostalgic ring. Anyway, in my deferred entry of judgment, the judge allowed me to continue to consume cannabis. And he even said in court, I heard some judges uh, get recommendations for for medical cannabis, and I can see why. So uh, he was pretty cool. That's a state case, Susan. I know. Not a federal case. I know. Federal judges are mandated. Yeah, I agree, Jason. It's not gonna. There's. I don't. I think this is ridiculous that he's even asking for this. I know. I think. The, I think the judge, or excuse me, I think the attorney representing him just shows how much of a clown show uh, attorney he is uh, by even asking for this request. Why? Why is it ridiculous? I mean, if because if it's a schedule one, it's to... a schedule one drug, Susan. It's very clear cut and simple. They've never approved any request, and they're very plain and simple when it comes to the federal government that cannabis is a Schedule One drug and would be treated as such. But we're talking about it now. I you, agree can talk, that- you can talk to your blue in the face. It doesn't matter. It's not changing the policy until we have federal legalization. But it creates the awareness law- of how crazy it is. The laws are definitely the laws, but if you want to look at it from a compassionate perspective, where I think a lot of us come from, this guy probably does have some real issues, and I give his uh, attorney some kudos for saying that publicly. Oh, no, I disagree. I think his attorney is an idiot for even asking. Yeah, his attorney... I wouldn't want him representing me. His attorney's looking for a safe harbor in the 
notion that the federal government won't interfere with state medical programs. But this guy's facing federal charges, and uh, the prohibition on him consuming marijuana relates to the federal charges he's facing. It has nothing to do with the state's medical cannabis operation at this point. 100%, and he's totally exempt from protections under Rohrbacher Farr from being a patient, seeing as how he was exporting cannabis across state lines. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. Like, the fact that he was uh, crossing state lines with them, like, it's a, that's just so ridiculous of a request. Interesting indeed. Man, wrong place, wrong time. All right, so up next, he's hailing out of Long Beach, California. Our next correspondent is the CEO of Fruit Slabs, the deliciously vegan and kosher treat. And uh, he's a, also a cannabis and intellectual property attorney uh, with a beard known for setting the world ablaze. Up next, it's Brandon Dorsky. What you got for us today, my man? I got some hot news this morning. Published today, as reported by CNN, the Russian court is extending U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner's arrest until May 19th. A court based in Moscow has announced Brittany Griner will stay in jail until at least May 19th after a court extended the period of detention for her. The two-time Olympic gold medalist was arrested at a Moscow airport on suspicion of smuggling significant amounts of a narcotic substance known as hot dog vape water. She was arrested on February 17th, and the world learned about it a few weeks later. Griner was in Russia because she has played for the Russian team UMMC Ekaterinburg, sorry for my pronunciation, since 2015 during the WNBA season. Ekaterina Kalugina, who represents Moscow's Public Monitoring Commission and observes the treatment of prisoners, claims to have visited Griner in pretrial detention and that the U.S. consul has not visited the, US, the 31-year-old star athlete yet. Previously, a U.S. senator had claimed that Griner had not been granted consular access, but Kalugina denies that and just says the consul has not showed up. Griner's wife, Cheryl Griner, has publicly called for Britney's release. An American-Iranian journalist, Jason Rezaian, who was detained in Iran over false charges for over 440 days, was also quoted as seeing a lot of parallels and called Britney's situation, quote, the most audacious hostage-taking by a state imaginable. I stand with Cheryl, Rezaian, and many others, and I think Russia needs to free Britney. It's Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. Didn't they say that she had massive amounts of cannabis? They said she had massive amounts of narcotics. I mean, in all fairness, any amount in Russia, they're going to call that massive just for the speculation and the press release. Man, I, I, I just want this is going to be crazy if Joe Biden even acknowledges this shit. This will be like the first time he's even said cannabis since he's been in office. Well, Hillary Clinton tweeted free Britney. Ah, I think come that- on, come on. <laughs> Why are we still talking about that's Hillary just placating? <laughs> that's nothing more than placating. Hillary Clinton needs to she needs to go on somewhere as well and she's a distraction for this whole damn thing i think joe biden should bring up the word fucking cannabis even if it's from britney griner but um hillary clinton needs to just just go sit in the corner and just 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 phase out please i mean in all fairness in all fairness though rico one one other side of that story could also be the fact that maybe uh hillary clinton's trying to pull some behind the strings uh for her with russia because if you remember when she was the secretary of state under obama uh she did the whole thing with Putin where they flew out there did the photo shot with Putin with the big staples button that was hit reset 
I've got I've got no doubt in my mind that she has nefarious <laughs> uh, intent with her uh, just, just just hanging around. Like she needs to just go on somewhere, just be quiet and, and support everybody else who's in the fight right now. But um, why are we even talking about Hillary Clinton? Like real because, talk. <laughs> well, Rico, because I think it's pretty big that Hillary Clinton is doing this when it's around cannabis, and I think it makes it a bigger story. And, you know, maybe the Democratic Party is ready to listen. Uh, I, I guess. It's, it's more around Delta 8. It's more around Delta 8 than it is yeah. cannabis. <laughs> we don't know that it was Delta 8, Jason. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm 9 out of 10. She's from Texas. I mean, it's Delta 8. She's a superstar. <laughs> if she was a superstar, she'd be playing in America. Uh, Should she I mean, get her? Oh, don't go there. She does, she does play, she does <laughs> play in America. Life. I covered that in my story, Jason. The reason why... WNBA stars, superstars. She's the third highest paid superstar in the WNBA. The reason why they have to go over there because America does not pay women right. nearly as much as they do men in this in this country, no matter how good they are at whatever they do. Right. So she has to displace her entire life and go overseas for an entire season just to make a living. And risk her freedom. I'm pretty sure that she could ball all of us up. Right, one on she, she has been known to dunk really on bad. dudes straight up. Yeah, yeah, cannot call her a superstar. I don't know, I'm still not calling her a superstar, maybe an athlete, but not a fucking superstar. Come on, all right. I don't see, right. I don't see anybody wearing free Britain gear out on the streets. We're gonna start doing it. Yeah, we'll make it. What? How much, how much revenue Left. is the merch line doing, Rico? Leftover from Britney Spears, I think it's spelled the same way. So. Repurpose the merch for the recycling greenies are going to love it. Okay, we need to get a room. We need to get a room, you guys. Let's keep smoking the news. All right. Up next is one of the top 25 women in cannabis making history, CEO of the award-winning Original Breeders League, MJ BizCon's 2021 Golden Bong Influencer of the Year, and one of the dopest mamas on the planet. Coming to the stage is Priscilla Agoncilla. What you got for us today, Pete? Thanks, Rico. Uh, I have to start my article by saying hashtag free Britney G. Let's just get that started now. Uh, so my article is parents worry changes to medical marijuana laws could mean starting from square one. Parents of some children who need medical cannabis oil should, could soon get it legally in Georgia, even though lawmakers tossed out the current process for awarding licenses to low THC producers. So WSB-TV Atlanta Channel 2's Rich Elliott covered this uh, article and had an interview with a mother named Shannon Cloud, who says she's a mother of a teenager who uses low THC oil for medicine. The interview was conducted in a parking lot of a Target store because she just made an admittedly illegal delivery of medical cannabis oil. She was quoted saying, on my way here, I did meet someone in a gas station parking lot to give medicine for a mom that has two children with autism and seizures, and they rely on the ability to get that medicine. Earlier, the, legislator, the legislature passed a law that would grant six companies special licenses to grow, manufacture, and distribute it. But that process was so badly flawed, the state house voted to throw it out and start over again and open up the licensing to more than 20 companies. Unfortunately, 
This means more time on the books to actually get legal medicine and access for those patients. Georgia House Speaker David Ralston said the new bill would also direct the state to purchase low THC oil and bring it back to Georgia so that parents will have legal access to it by August. At the same time, he was also quoted saying, we're taking care of the delay and, you know, I regret the delay, but frankly, we just had to sort of tear it down and start over. The Georgia State Medical Cannabis Program currently has 23,000 patients registered to it. So people are patiently waiting. And uh, I, I'm not sure why the article uh, put in all those little details uh, about the, you know, the illegal transaction and actually named names because that's just really stupid, as Jason Beck always says. You know, don't rat on yourself. But at the same time, we understand the plight of this woman and many other families that are really needing access to, uh, you know, low THC, THC oil, whatever it may be for medical purposes. This is Priscilla reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Free Priscilla, Britain. I'm sure they can just go and get it from uh, the local guy on the corner. He's uh, well, taking he, care of everybody. Well, but, well that, that's the point. The, the woman that was interviewed is the quote-unquote dope man. And she's obviously not a dope man. She's doing one specific thing, you know. So we just have to get away from the term dope man, um, you know, educate everyone and know that this will always exist when parents have to treat their children. So I understand that, you know, we have to come up with safety regulations. At the end of the day, this is supposed to be, you know, not for the sole purpose of, uh, of, uh, of making money, but we have to put safety protocols out there for patients and make sure that the medicine they are receiving is safe and that they have safe access so they don't have to do this in parking lots. On the other hand, we should not vilify those that have carried this industry uh, to what it is today. And they should be included. They shouldn't have these high barriers to entry. There's no way a regular small family can compete against an MSO that has millions and millions of dollars behind them, stomping them out of the market. So there has to be something that includes the community. Amen, sister. Amen. Yeah, well indeed. said, Priscilla. I couldn't add to that at all. I can't imagine being a parent and having to seek out medicine for my kid from a gas station parking lot transaction. Uh. I mean, I know, you know, we've had a legacy market or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, here in California for a long time. And we all sort of, you know, built the current market off the back of really similar ecosystems and financial transactions. Um, you know, so we had a lot of faith in it and I, I hope she feels as confident in her provider as, as we did back then, but it's still scary. I don't understand why it's taking Georgia seven years to pull their act together. Yeah. That's the big thing about this article. They're about to at least put six companies on the line and now they came back and, you know, they're, why limit it to 20? There are, uh, almost 30,000 patients on their medical cannabis program. That's ridiculous. Big farmers in those pockets. Exactly. Yes, big farmers in the pocket. Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Um, big farmers in the uh, our legislators are in the pockets of big pharma corporations, uh, law enforcement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, Priscilla, uh, thank you for bringing the story this morning. There are two pieces of legislation that have been approved. One in the Senate is going to give out like thirty-eight licenses. The one in the House is going to scrap everything and start all over. 
they have to come up with a compromise bill by April 4. So that's what we're waiting on. Why is it taking so long to get cannabis in Georgia? It's also a original slave state. Uh, we used to rank number six in the nation for arrest for possession. We're slowly trying to decriminalize, but there's a lot of good old boys down here. And with the legislature being uh, dominated by Republicans for the last couple of years, it's really about trying to keep progress from happening. So that's, that's, that's why it's taking so long. Well, and while I agree with you, um, Dr. Felicia, people also need to remember that this is nobody's priority in state houses. No one is going up there and saying cannabis legalization is our number one issue. They're dealing with a pandemic. They're trying to stop inflation. They're trying to figure out how do we give money to Ukraine. There's all sorts of problems going on, and cannabis is number 33 on the list. Um, I beg so to differ, state, Gretchen. For a state that is like Georgia... Uh, where cannabis, I guarantee you, is very low on the priority list. It's going to take quite a while. Uh, We legalized legalized a year after Florida. Florida has a fully developed medical cannabis uh, market. There's no reason for Georgia not to be somewhere near I hear you, but we've seen in the past. I'm sorry, Susan, but just for take example for Maryland. It took Maryland over four years after legalizing to get something up and running on their market. If you don't have a legislature or a governor who's on board with legalization, it is not going to move quickly. Okay, we're at time on this uh, headline, but I wanted to give uh, Andrea from the audience 10 seconds. Did you want to weigh in on this headline? Yes, please. Um, Again, my name is Andrea, and I'm um, from North Carolina, and I um, just happened to see um, you all this morning, so I said I would join in. Um, I'm the owner of a home-based business called Glorious Hemp, and um, I'm very um, sorry about what happened to the young lady. However, uh, with Georgia um, not being one of the states that um, cannabis is is legal, um, it's actually good for them to do that because cannabis, uh, with it not being um, regulated, you know, it's it, people are gathering these um, oils, the tinctures, and they're marketing them, and they're they can have um, toxins in them. Okay, and so I'm, but I'm still surprised because of the fact that she um, did not go online to purchase, you know, to like seek these oils out. I'm kind of surprised about that, but um, she can go online. We've got to we've got to keep moving, Andrea. I'm sorry. Okay. We are we're at the halfway point, and we need to uh, quickly relight this room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news.
Let's. Now, she's a feisty redheaded conservative with Mayflower roots, never backing down from a good debate with cannabis-loving peers across the aisle, even though she's a staunch supporter of safe banking and a hater of the locally loved street pharmacists everywhere. I love her all the same. Coming to the stage next is the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us today, Gretchen? Thank you, Rico. I think you should add realist to my uh, bio. But my headline here comes from uh, Marijuana Moment. Uh, marijuana legalization hasn't led to more youth use, a uh, report from Alcohol and Tobacco Industry Back Group says. As Alcohol and Tobacco Industry Back Marijuana Policy Group released a report yesterday that provides an overview of data showing the state-level cannabis legalization has not led to increased youth consumption and offers perspective on the prevention methods. The Coalition for Cannabis Policy, Education, and Regulation released the data and analysis, which points to a study that plainly contradict claims often made by prohibitionists that cre- that creating regulated ma- cannabis markets would lead more underage people to consume marijuana. The report from uh, CPAIR, whose members include Altria Client Services, Molson Coors Beverage Company, and Constellation Brands, was released ahead of a planned panel event the group is hosting today focusing on youth prevention and featuring Senator John Hickenlooper. In its analysis, CPAIR says the evidence indicates that government guidance, access to research, and increased exposure to community-driven science-based after-school programming deters underage marijuana use. Creating regulated cannabis markets could drive down youth use by undermining the illicit market where IDs and age limits aren't imposed, uh, the group argues. CPAIR believes local communities should be at the core of any effort to reduce youth use and misuse of cannabis. These efforts include after-school programs combined with measurable targets on a timely basis. Additionally, a federal regulatory system should consist of policies to fund community systems and ensure that appropriate resources are available. And finally, a community approach must be driven by data and science to adapt continuously. Andrew Friedman, executive director of CPAIR and a former Colorado cannabis official, said in a press release that more than 100 million Americans live in a state with legalized adult-use cannabis, but we should consider what that means for our nation's youth. This research highlights how preventing youth from using cannabis requires local communities and stakeholders to be at the forefront of this effort. It further outlines the need for congressional action to build a federal cannabis framework rooted in data, correct the current patchwork of cannabis laws, and build preventative measures into place to protect America's youth from cannabis misuse. Uh, the report's analysis and recommendations generally align with many of uh, those legalization advocates. But that said, some activists have had misgivings about CPAIR's financial backing from operators in the alcohol and tobacco industries, which haven't always been seen as taking necessary steps to prevent youth use of those substances. Shalene Title, founder of Parabola Center, told uh, Marijuana Moment that CPAIR's report is just the latest piece of evidence demonstrating what people in the marijuana movement have long known is true. An effectively regulated cannabis market is a deterrent to youth consumption and access. I don't agree with uh, Shalene very much, but I do agree with her on this point. Um, And I do agree that if you want to move the needle um, on regulations, on legalization, you need data, you need things like this. Um, Clearly, it's being backed by alcohol and tobacco, which some may uh, not be big fans of, but I'm big fans of getting anything done. So if these guys are going to put their money behind uh, going against groups like SMART, I'm all for it. This is Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Hour. Now, this is a report directly from Alcohol and, and Tobacco 
industry? No, like, the, the report is from the Coalition for Cannabis Policy Education okay. and Regulation. Their clients are Altria, Molson, and Constellation. Got it, got it. So basically, it. Canopy, Kronos, um, and who's back? Who's with Molson Coors? I forget. So they're the ones paying the bill. Got it. Uh, Andrew Friedman, for those who don't remember, he was the uh, drug czar of Colorado when they first legalized. Um, that's why I'm sure uh, uh, Senator Hickenlooper is involved because he worked directly under him uh, when he was governor. Um, they also have on their board uh, Tom Daschle, who's Senate Majority Leader from many years ago. I've worked with Daschle on this issue. Um, he is one Democrat I actually respect, and I think uh, he, they're definitely trying to do things the right way. They are a good group of economists and, and um, analysts. I know John Hudak is also involved with them. I don't think they're cooking the books just because uh, these guys can afford to pay them. I think it's, I think it's good information if it comes out um, all right in the end. It was a given. The kids aren't going to follow. <laughs> the kids aren't going to follow their, their their parents and what they're doing. So on to the other drugs. <laughs> I mean, I think it's truly all about, you know, what about the kids? The kids should have parents who are telling them what to do. This shouldn't all be on the state to, you know, save them from drugs. I mean, it's just silly. Agreed. All right. So are we going to Laura next, Susan? I, I'm i not sure. I think right, so this, this badass cat of mom is the Jean co-founder is of International Jean. Cannabis Bar Jean. Association. Jean. <laughs> 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 oh, here we go. Gene is next. Gene Talleyrand, come on to the stage, my man. <laughs> Please. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> what you got for us today, brother? This article from, uh, or this is Open Access Government, a UK publication by Escarina Handley. Title is Medical Cannabis and the Future of Cancer Treatments. So I evaluated a couple patients this past week treating cancer with cannabis and looked at recent news to see what progress is being made in cannabis cancer research. Early stage research suggests that cannabis-derived medicines should be effective in treating various cancers. Although those of us in the cannabis industry may already be aware of this, the medical community is just coming around to accepting the idea. Recent experimental treatments and small-scale clinical trials in Europe are showing the efficacy of medicinal cannabis formulations. THC has primarily been used in cancer treatment for palliative care to relieve nausea and stimulate appetite. However, early-stage research is suggesting that cannabis, which is more than THC, is also highly effective treatment for killing cancer cells. So how does it work? Preclinical studies have shown that cannabinoids reduce cell growth and disrupt the blood supply to cancerous cells, including brain tumors, breast cancers, and prostate cancer, among others. With potentially hundreds of naturally occurring constituents, there's no one magic medical cannabis bullet in cancer treatment. Cutting-edge work using artificial intelligence is being carried out to analyze cannabis plant genetics and to determine the best combination of cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, and other constituents to target and optimize the treatment of various cancers. It's a many-to-many puzzle, many active ingredients to treat many types of cancers. In preclinical studies, cannabis cancer treatments can be tested through either 2D or 3D cell culture testing. 3D cell cultures allow researchers to recreate specific pathological environments. 
The improvement in 3D cell culture technology has led to the generation of models that encompass more physiological and tissue-specific microenvironments. Despite advancements in preclinical testing, the key to gaining full acceptance in the medical community is real human data from clinical trials. Currently, there is a small-scale clinical trial on glioblastoma in the UK and another trial on liver cancer in the Netherlands. Scientists are also assessing the role of personalized medicine. Personalized medicine recognizes that we are all physiologically unique and uses individualized DNA sequencing to target treatment. Personalized medicine is already used in traditional treatment of cancer. So combined, the analysis of artificial intelligence, 3D cell cultures, and personalized medicine present a huge opportunity for medical cannabis and treatment of cancer. This is Dr. Jean Talleyrand from the State of Cannabis News Hour. I just love that all of this is coming to the forefront now. Um, big shout out to everybody out in Spanibus as well. I know that's a, a major focus of um, uh, of their operations this week is uh, on cancer treatments as well. And um, all of this would not be possible if we didn't find it out first from the neighborhood dope man. Agreed. <laughs> the community provider. Street pharmacists everywhere. Rejoice. <laughs> Today's State of the Cannabis News Hour is brought to you by all the trap gods at 45th and Mission. Not sure where that is, but let's keep smoking the news. Less. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. So it's this, in the metaverse. It is. Where you, where you can find weed any and everywhere and nowhere at the same time. All right. So uh, up next, this fifth generation California is an award-winning journalist with a multicultural background. He's a writer, brand consultant, event promoter, content ninja, and freedom-fighting farmer's friend. Up next, international man of truth-telling, Eric Hiss Lareda. What you got for us today, Eric? Hey, Rico. Thank you for that intro. Um, great to be here today. Um, my headline is from Foreign Policy Magazine, and it's Hernandez's arrest won't stop the drug war, with a subhead that reads, Washington continues to empower repressive and corrupt Latin American governments through flawed security initiatives. So a couple of things that Hernandez are referencing here is former Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez. Uh, the other is that since this article is an amazing and very deep dive into all the missteps the U.S. has made in Latin America, I'm just pulling out some headlights. Uh, highlights. But again, it's worth a read because I don't think most people in this country and in our industry know enough about this, this region that has been so critical to every facet of cannabis and other plant medicines for centuries. Uh, so diving in, as then Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez's term came to a close in January, many Hondurans hoped he would soon be extradited to the United States following the path of his brother, Tony Hernandez, uh, a former Honduran legislator who was sentenced to life in prison in the United States on drugs and weapon charges last year. But most people doubted it would actually happen. The now former Honduran president, notorious for corruption, has remained a close U.S. ally through it all. Accusations of drug corruption have flowed around Hernandez for years, ever since his brother's 2018 arrest and trial. U.S. prosecutors indicated the president was a co-conspirator in his brother's violent state-sponsored drug trafficking conspiracy. Um, but his status as president made things tricky. A White House aide indicated that U.S. Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, after being briefed on Hernandez last year, wanted to, uh, quotes, go get him now, but was av advised against doing so because he was head of state. 
But two weeks after he left office, uh, uh, the, the U.S. turned the screws on him. A formal request was filed with the Honduran government for the former president's extradition, and he was re arrested without re resistance the following day. So rather than aberration, Hernandez is a window into the contradictions of the drug war itself, and his fall from grace speaks to deeper dysfunction within U.S.-led efforts to combat drug cartels, not just in Honduras, but throughout Latin America. The article gets um, into some of the history of the region and the so-called war on drugs, um, saying that uh, the war on drugs began in June 1971 after then-U.S. President Richard Nixon identified drugs as public enemy number one and expanded uh, throughout Latin America in the 70s and 80s after Washington began identifying the drug trade as a national security threat that needed to be combated by military force. So this then pushed the U.S. to demand for counter-narcotics actions and security forces in countries such as Colombia, Bolivia, Mexico, where they started aerial fumigation campaigns uh, of clandestine coca and poppy fields and arrested members of the drug trade and screwing small local communities and farmers in the process. Uh, this ar article also talks about operations like Operation Condor in Mexico. Um, and again, these things uh, elaborates that these initiatives were laden with controversy. Security forces benefiting from a surge in U.S. aid were documented being responsible for massacres, extrajudicial killings, and enforced disappearances. Critics, meanwhile, pointed out that beyond the temporary dips, overall drug flows remained consistent, in some cases even rose. And here's a really relevant paragraph to all this uh, mess down there. Uh, the U.S. has selectively weaponized anti-drug policy against Latin American government officials only after they have been used to facilitate U.S. interests in the region, said Oswaldo Zavala, a Mexican journalist. As a precedent, Zavala referenced Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega, who had helped funnel drug money to the Nicaraguan Contras as a former CIA asset before eventually running afoul of his benefactors in the United States, who ousted him in a massive invasion in the winter of 89 and 1990. So I'm going to wrap it up with this quote from Don Paley, a journalist who covers the region, who said this about Hernandez's uh, potential extradition. It won't fundamentally, uh, won't fundamentally alter the course of the drug war or necessarily improve things for the better. Doing so would require the regulation of narcotics and the demilitarization of, pro of prohibition. So LATAM needs legalization and clinics, not more military campaigns. And that's what I got for today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. The drug war will always wage on. Well, I mean, the foundation of it is just like um, this country supporting the, the worst of the worst politicians there. Um, this guy was considered a rock-ribbed conservative who was going to fight drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And what's he doing? He's just running shit out the back door. And that's the story of Honduras and a lot of the cent in Central America. So he's more fighting drugs as opposed to fighting them? Yeah, these guys are dealers, just like Noriego is piping it for uh, the bushes and running it up to um, the streets of, of uh, Oakland and Brooklyn and all that during the 80s. That's how that was getting the crack epidemic was, thank you, Central America, Noriega, and are the way to fund the Nicaraguan Contra. Great story, Eric. Thank you so much for bringing that. Absolutely. Yeah, fantastic, Eric. Great job. It's a great dive. You guys should check out the article. It's all there. Most definitely. So we are at the end of the line for that story. Our next correspondent is a blunt-blowing Fresno-based protector of freedom, representing the black conservative point of view. Mainstream media does not want you all to know exists. Here to come to the stage is the governor himself, Nicholas Wildstar. What you got for us today? 
Thank you, thank you, Rico. What's up, State of Cannabis? Hope you all are enjoying some good greens along with your green brew this St. Patty's Day. My story today brings to light more abuses of the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness by the American government for criminalizing cannabis use during a time when the demand is higher than ever to legalize it. A 41-year-old Jamaican citizen living in Connecticut has been ordered to spend more than 24 years in prison for various offenses, including marijuana trafficking. Although his trial occurred in December 2018, the man was only recently sentenced to 295 months in prison for marijuana trafficking, firearm possession, and money laundering offenses. A statement from the U.S. Attorney Office for the District of Connecticut said the jury found him guilty of one count of conspiracy to distribute and to possess with intent to distribute, one count of possession with intent to distribute, one count of possession of firearms and furtherance of a drug trafficking crime, and one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering. But five years before his trial, the man was being investigated for by Homeland Security, the U.S. Postal Service, and the Connecticut State Police for allegedly moving large amounts of cannabis from the Southwest to Connecticut. The Connecticut City Attorney's Office reports that during the investigation, investigators intercepted four packages, each containing approximately eight kilos of marijuana from the U.S. mail and made multiple controlled purchases of the drug from a member of the trafficking ring. The man was arrested in February 2017 following a search of an apartment he shared with his girlfriend, a storage unit in her name, and two apartments he maintained under different aliases. A search of all three locations revealed, among other things, about 58 kilos of cannabis, about half a million in cash, a loaded 9mm, boxes of ammunition, three firearms, one of which was stolen, firearm magazines, and numerous fake IDs, including a U.S. passport. Additionally, investigators seized the 2014 BMW X6, a 2016 Honda Accord, and a 2008 Honda Odyssey all of which were registered to his girlfriend and had been purchased with proceeds of the marijuana trafficking enterprise. In 2008, the man was being investigated under another one of his aliases. A police search at the time revealed marijuana packaged for sale, drug packaging, paraphernalia, fake IDs, firearms, ammunition, extended magazines, and eight UPS receipts for packages that had not arrived, which were later found to contain more than 34 kilos of weed. However, the man was not located. When he was arrested in February 2017, investigators seized more than 40 fake IDs, including the names of the addresses of the packages found in 2008. After completing his prison term, he also faces immigration proceedings. The man's girlfriend pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to distribute and to possess with intent to distribute marijuana and one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering in 2017. She was sentenced to two and a half years of imprisonment in 2018. White Lady Cop Kim Porter killed Dante Wright and was sentenced to two years in jail. Derek Chauvin, the cop who killed George Floyd, was sentenced to 22 years. For anyone that ever wanted proof of the absurd systemic racism in our nation's justice system, here's yet another example out of the countless others just like it. This is Nick Wildstar, a.k.a. The Governor, reporting with the State of Cannabis News Hour. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Menica, someone needs to do some stats on that, like the the jail sentences and how how different they are for cannabis. 
He's sentenced to 20, 24 years. Meanwhile, Derek Chauvin got 22 for killing the man. Mm. Tomato, tomato? What? This huh? <laughs> dude. Wow. So much we can go into on that, but I know we're short on time. Uh, coming up next uh, to bring us home, this badass cannabis mom is the co-founder of International Cannabis Bar Association, current chair of the Bar Association of Ca- San Francisco Cannabis Law Section, and one of the silkiest, <laughs> smoothest on air in all of America, Laura DeCaro. What you got for us today, Laura? Thanks, Rico. I'm going to get this written really quick if I can. I'm, I'm out of Connecticut today with United Food and Commercial Workers Love to Organize Cannabis Industry by Christine Stewart for the CT News Junkie, which is actually a local news source from the Capitol there, um, uh, not just a junkie <laughs> reporter. Anyway, so uh, this article is a little bit difficult to follow, but apparently the UFCW is offering a new apprenticeship and training program for potential employees out there, which seems to me to be a tool just to you know get to potential potential members very, very, very early and, you know, love or hate the UFCW. It's not or uh, clear by the article if the program is actually supported by Connecticut lawmakers or if participation might actually hinder job prospects at some facilities. But she does go on to talk about a big part of the legalization effort in Connecticut being the creation of a quote-unquote social equity council, which will give deference to applicants from certain census tracts with lower income levels. Uh, But it's not entirely clear to me. I did some digging and how that deference is to be provided when they only open their application period for those actually located in those areas to one period of 90 days while others experience several periods of uh, application opportunity. And I think the author just tries to simplify their lottery process out there for the sake of making sense at the expense of making sense. But anyway, I I thought it was really interesting to see what's going on in Connecticut. UFCW is expanding their reach. And I want to know if anybody um, has any thoughts on on that. Laura DeCaro, party for the State of Cannabis News Hour. They're representing that they have been like the representative of the cannabis industry for the last decade. We could definitely, we we definitely could get a room on that, but we're at time. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico for co-producing the show and to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye. I love Gretchen Gailey.